church family, let's stand together. And for the reading of God's word, it's his word that makes the dead come alive. So God's got something to say to all of us this morning on the authority of his word. And uh, if nothing is said to you before you leave, <laughs> it might just be we didn't listen. And I don't say that because I'm the preacher. I'm saying that because my Bible's open. Amen. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took hold of him and brought him up to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore about these, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. It said to pause there. It said Athenians, not Americans. I just want to make sure. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray for grace when we're surrounded by idols and our spirits are not provoked. Give us grace now to know what a provoked spirit has to do with the proclaimed Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few uh, years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was visiting there with my mom, and we were just there for a couple of afternoons, and so I went to one of the art museums. Now, there seem to be, when it comes to art, two types of people, those who really love art and those who uh, don't quite love it as much, and I probably fall into that second category, but we're in D.C. I mean, it's the art museum, and so uh, my mom was visiting another of the museums, and I said, well, I haven't seen this one. I mean, I'd spent uh, several, several hours in the Smithsonian History Museum on a previous uh, trip that was more more um, my style, but I said, well, here, I'm at the art museum, I'll go, and I got the map, and only had about an hour and a half, so what I I decided to do is I got the map and I uh, did my route where I would see everything that I could see. So 90 minutes later, walked out of the art museum and my mom asked, um, what did you see? And I said, I saw it all. And a little bit of time went by and what I realized was not that I had seen it all and is actually that I hadn't really seen anything. I just blew by Rembrandt and went on to the next and went on to the next. And, and think about that sometimes because this is what we can do with this word here. It's glorious. It's not man-made. This is eternal scripture, but man, we just blow by it. And man, there's life-changing truth in here, but we just kind of blow by it. We're on our way to somewhere else. We just need to get it done. We need to get the series over with. We need to get our quiet time done, and we don't stop. Somebody would have been done better, probably, if they really wanted to get something out of the art museum is just look at one painting for the 90 minutes instead of look at all the paintings for 30 seconds on your way to the to the next one. And so what I'd like us to do for if we can this morning is I actually want to zoom in and and as I've thought over this scripture, there's a word in particular that has uh, just stuck with me. Has this ever happened to you when you study the Bible and there's just a word or a phrase and it just grabs your attention and won't let you go? 
because there's not something right in here in my heart because what I'm seeing in the scripture, here's a, a healthy Bible study habit, I think, is when you read something and it, what it's saying is true of the people of God, and then you look at your own life and you say, that's not quite true of me, then it's not time to move on. In, in fact, I've found in my life, if I'm not willing to listen to what God is saying here, and then I think I'm going to go over here and say, God, you tell me something over here, he'll very frequently say, well, let's come back over here. <laughs> you just need to gaze at this a little bit longer. And the word is provoked. That's what it says of Paul. It says, it says right here. It's the word I want to talk about and think about. Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked. Have you ever been provoked? Anything just provoked you? As I was thinking about this, immediately in my mind came a time that I was greatly provoked. And it involved my... Um, brother joe who's not here so uh so i want to be careful in what i say but you know siblings who are closest in age usually kind of collide a little bit as they as they grow up maybe that didn't happen in your house in your home you and your brother your sister i mean it was all wonderful and you never had arguments but for for me and my brother joe in particular who's i was the youngest of three uh, which meant that I was always the weakest and the smallest. And I think that's probably what God used to call me to be a preacher because when you're the weakest and smallest, you have to learn to talk and have to kind of talk your way out of, out of things. But my brother Joe, who's two years older than me, we had a season. You know what I'm saying? A season when I was around 11 and 12 and he was 13 and 14, that, man, we were just at odds. Joe had established a rule, and it was an easy rule to understand. This was the rule. I could not wear any of his clothes at any time for any reason. Now, easy to understand, but, but here's how the rule worked. It didn't go the other way. It, it wasn't, neither one of us could w- ne- not wear any clothes of the other at any time. The, the rule was he had special permission to wear my clothes any time that he, he wanted. Now, when I was 11, most every t-shirt I w- uh, owned was a San Francisco 49er t-shirt, and he wasn't much interested in those shirts, but I had one shirt, one shirt that he liked, and this school year, um, the way the dynamics worked was my brother Joe had to be up, dressed, and gone to catch the bus before I even got out of bed in the morning. That's just how it, how it worked. And I can remember getting up and heard him exiting the front door, and I looked out the window, and guess what he had on? The shirt. The shirt that I had already laid out to wear, and he had it on, and uh, he walked off to the bus with his buddies, and a little, a little a fire began to burn in my chest. And as the day progressed, I, fa- I, I, I began to feed that flame, right? The unfairness of it. Who does he think he is? He won't let me wear his clothes. And I mean, I'm in, I'm in a science class, and I'm not even listening to what the teacher said. I'm just feeding this flame, resentment, and anger smoldering. And I compounded it with all the other memories of all the other times that he had beat me up and taken my stuff and been unkind. Now, I, I don't know quite what was going on on his school schedule. Not only did he have to leave before I even got up, he got home well after I had gotten home in the afternoon. Maybe that's why he was so upset. He spent hours a day on the school bus now that I look back, and maybe that's what was going on. But I got home, and you ever do this where you rehearse what you're going to say? And I'm just pacing in the house, man. I'm just pacing back and forth. Who does he think he is? He's going to wear my shirt. I can't wear his shirt. And, and he walked in the door, and then you've been rehearsing, and then you get to the moment, and it doesn't quite play out like you had rehearsed it. And I had this long speech planned, and he walked through the door, and I had the speech, but all I could kind of get out was, nice shirt. That's what I managed. And he kind of looked down at his shirt, and, and he said, yeah, it is a nice shirt. I've enjoyed wearing it all day long. 
And my big comeback was, well, that shirt belongs to me. And then I'll never forget it. It's what he said. He came back with this. Well, if you want it, you have to come get it. (laughs) And in that moment, that white hot fire, hands are kind of shaking just thinking about it right now. That white hot fire, I'm kind of getting worked up about it all over again. That fire started burning. He's, he was going to walk by me, and he kind of bumped me in the shoulder and kept walking. And that fire just, when he bumped me, it just exploded. And he was walking past me, and I just ran after him, and I collided with him. I was like a wild animal. I was like a rabid wolverine. I was clawing at that shirt, and, and it's really fortunate and really lucky what happened. He didn't really think I'd come. I'd never really attacked him. I'd just taken it, taken it, taken it, but I kind of snapped like Ralphie in a Christmas story. Every time I see that scene, that's what I think about. And I just charged him, and I grabbed the shirt, and what happened is that we fell into a bedroom, and the shirt, as I grabbed it, kind of pinned his arms, and so he was like this, and I'm just after him, and I'm after him, and I'm screaming and yelling and pulling, and uh, he can't get up, and I'm laying on top of him, and then my dad comes from the kitchen, heard what in the world's going on, and my dad, large 225-pound man, he started to pull me off Joe, but I wasn't having it. I just latched on, and my dad couldn't pull me off, and this is literally what happened. All of a sudden, I felt, what is going on? My dad was pulling me off by my hair. That's how much I had snapped, and I was, uh, he's pulling me off, and my dad finally pulls me off, and this is what happened, y'all. As, I, as my dad pulled me off, I still had a hold of that shirt, and I came off, and the shirt came with me. That's what happened, and I, I did this. I held up the shirt, and I stormed out of the room, and I held the shirt up for all the younger brothers on the face of the earth. Any younger brothers in here? I held up the shirt for you, and I said, I did it. All right, that's what I wanted to share this morning. We're dismissed. we we'll just go. Let's go home. Now, now, I'd like to say, I'd like to say that after I walked out of that room, and, and some of you guys have been there before, that I was in triumph, but I did that really weird, awkward thing where the adrenaline surge was over, and I started crying. I mean, how lame is that? And it just, <gasps> and hold the shirt. And my dad kind of escorted me out of the room. My dad took me out, actually took me out of the whole house. He just took me on the deck, and he said, why don't you just stay out here for a little while? And I sat down on the deck, and I hold that shirt <gasps> until I could breathe again. Provoked. I had been provoked, but not like Paul's provoked here. I was provoked in my flesh. When you're provoked in your flesh, it leads you to do selfish, hurtful, harmful things. When you're provoked in your spirit, it's totally different. Instead of grabbing somebody's shirt off their back, when you're provoked in the spirit, friends, you give the shirt off your back to somebody else for their good. That's what happens here. Look, his spirit was provoked. This word, as I thought about it and it grabbed my attention and wouldn't let me go, is only used one other time in the whole New Testament. And it's actually Paul who uses it in a familiar passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, when he says love is not easily provoked is the word. Sometimes it's translated love is not easily irritated. But Paul was, was provoked. And you see where he's provoked. Again, not in his flesh. He's provoked in his spirit. And it leads him to do something. It's not that he was provoked and he just kind of learned to live with it. I want you to see there's a cause and effect, and that's the title of the sermon, the provoked spirit and the proclaimed truth, or the proclaimed, uh, yeah, the proclaimed truth. And, and so for this Sunday and the next, we're going to look at Paul while he's in 
Athens and think through what provoked him and then what he did in response. So, so here's this truth. Bottom line, uh, if you want to write this down, and maybe this is enough for you today, this morning, from the scripture, is that you cannot be provoked in your spirit and not do something. That, that, that's not how it works. You can't be provoked in your spirit and then it not compel you to, to act. And I want you to see what it is, we'll walk through it together, that Paul, Paul does. What happened inside of Paul, in his spirit, leads him to, to do something. The provoked spirit leads to the proclaimed truth. Well, as we uh, kind of dig down into this particular passage, and again, this morning we'll study 17, chapter 17, 16 to 21, kind of what Paul happened to him, and then next Sunday we'll actually study his, his message when he goes to the Areopagus to preach. But let's do a little bit of our who, what, when, where. And first of all, it's verse 16. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. You see that? We're not in Berea anymore. We're not in Thessalonica anymore. Now we're in Athens. And so I want to tell you a few things about Athens so we can kind of understand what's going on in Paul's life. Is First of all, if you've got an outline talking about the city of Athens, is first of all, Athens was the cultural capital of the empire. Athens is the cultural capital of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the empire. So, so Athens is the birthplace of democracy. It's the place of ideas. Now, uh, on Sunday afternoon in the United States of America, you can go home today and at least um, probably 14 or so cities, depending on how many teams have a bye week this week, stadiums are going to be packed with thousands of fans to watch a football game. That's what's going to happen today. Uh, in Athens, they, they had large crowds come together, but it wasn't for sporting events. It was actually for speeches. Can you believe that? I mean, they got thousands of people to show up for, for someone, a philosopher, to stand up and begin to speak. And they loved eloquence, and they loved, what do we read, new ideas. Hey, somebody's going to speak on such and such today. We've never heard these things before. Let's go and hear. And, and Athenians had diverse worldviews, but it's the, it's the cultural capital. And it's a little bit similar to, to the United States of America in some regard. What's the political capital of the United States? Washington, D.C., right up the road in I-95. There it is. There's the Capitol building and the Washington Monument. That's where the president lives. That's where the Senate and so on and so forth. But Washington, D.C. is not really the cultural capital. What's the cultural capital of our culture? It's probably New York City, right? Yeah, you might want to make an argument for Los Angeles, one, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. But, but that's sort of the same dynamic happened in the Roman Empire. What was the Roman Empire's political capital? It was Rome. It's where the emperor lived, where the Senate was, and so on and so forth. But uh, culturally speaking, I, I mean ideas. You know, you can't read a book or watch a movie, every other one, where's, this, where's it set? It's always in <laughs> New York City. It's where most of the advertising comes from. That's where most of the networks are located, right? That's the city of ideas. And is that important in a culture? Oh, man. You might just take a moment and pray for the churches in New York City, right? I mean, because, because as New York City thinks, it just kind of spreads throughout the whole nation. And that's what happened in the Roman Empire, in, in, in Athens. Now, now, let's look at what it says. He saw that the city was full of idols. Now, Paul did not walk around Athens as a tourist. He wasn't there to snap pictures, if you will. Paul was always engaged in the spiritual atmosphere of where he was. And that's another helpful lesson for, for us. He wasn't there to just hang out. We'll get to this in a moment. Who is Paul there with? He's actually there alone. Silas and Timothy have stayed back. 
He's come to Athens. They are on his trail again. He's always on the run, and he's come to Athens for a little while. It says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, Paul's there by himself. And as he looks around, he sees sculptures dedicated to Athena and Apollo and Jupiter and Venus and Mercury and Diana. Oh, the other gods of, uh, of Olympus, and they're made out of stone, and they're made out of brass, and they're made out of gold, and they're made out of silver, and they're made out of ivory, and they're made out of marble. And to most people, if they would have looked on it, they would have just been impressed and said, wow, but Paul looked at it, and it says his spirit was provoked. Athens, with its ideas and its teachings, the cultural capital of the empire. And Paul is provoked because he understands that this is a people who love to worship, and they love to discuss, and they love to think, and they love to write, and they love to show up in large crowds and listen to speakers, but they do not recognize God at all. They worship the creation instead of the creator. It's probably a setting like Athens, as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in Romans. Just listen to this, Romans chapter 1, verse 21 Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, listen to this, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And, and Paul's provoked spirit's not about him having a bad temper. And that's how he used to be, right? But he feels great jealousy, I think is an okay word to use, for the glory of God. Because he looks around and people are worshiping all sorts of things, but they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And Paul says, oh, this just provokes me. And friends, the Bible says that God himself is, glor- is jealous rather for his own glory. I am the Lord. I will not share my glory with another. Paul's provoked because it's this sort of thing that provokes Almighty God. Here's another good principle for you to, <laughs> to write down. If it provokes God, it ought to provoke me in whom God's spirit dwells. Well, the Athenians also held diverse worldviews. It's not like they all thought the same. Uh, we, we sort of uh, get the idea that diversity is, is, is some new and American idea. It's not. Look here, it says in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Who does Paul share the gospel with first? Those who happened to be there. Who should you share the gospel with in your life? Those who happen to be there those who you find yourself around working with and living across from so Paul goes up to people and then notice in verse 18 people come up to Paul some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said what does this babbler wish to say I want to point out again here uh, friends the verbs Paul's provoked but listen to the verbs so the provocation leads him to reason and converse reason and converse. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to give an answer to each person. That's Colossians uh, chapter 4, I believe. And so Paul reasons with them. On the note of diverse worldviews or diverse beliefs, we get two references here, and I don't know if they make any sense to you, in verse 18, Epicureans 
and Stoics. So let me just describe them for a moment. An Epicurean, they have a saying that you've probably heard before, believe it or not. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was the Epicureans. They actually said that. And what it means is their belief was that the gods were so distant that the gods didn't really have any concern about what human beings do. And so the Epicurean worldview was this. Hey, the gods don't care. There's no boundaries. There's no rules. So we're just going to live it up. And so what the Epicurean mindset was is we're going to pursue pleasure without any boundaries. Now, we don't use the term Epicurean anymore, but friends, that belief and that worldview is alive and well. In fact, there are many Americans today who are Epicureans. No boundaries, no rules, gods don't care. Uh, we've adjusted that in our culture to say, not that the gods don't care, but that there is no God, and so we'll just do what we want when we want. Nobody can tell us what to, what to do. Well, that's an Epicurean mindset. They didn't believe there would be any survival after death. Human life, they thought, was a result of random chance. Does any of this sound familiar? We got it in our eyes. We've got all these new ideas. They're not new. They're not new. There's no behavior, no practice that's new. All these things are very, very ancient. In fact, they all go back to the snake in the garden. They had a conviction that there would be no judgment. So, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, we die. Avoid pain or suffering at all costs. The Stoics, the Stoics, on the other hand, were sort of their philosophical rivals. The Stoics acknowledged the supremacy of the gods, but, but they believed the world was determined by fate and human beings must pursue their duty. So Epicureans, their philosophy, if you want to simplify it, sum up in one word, pleasure. The Stoics duty we have to perform our our duty so again maybe to oversimplify epicureans emphasize chance there's no real reason for anything so eat drink be merry escape and have pleasure stoics emphasize fatalism things happen for a reason and there's not anything you can do about it so submit and endure the pain so we don't use those terms again today right but many americans adopted epicurean philosophy you can just turn on the television, right? We've got whole channels devoted to Epicurean mindsets. And they don't get as high ratings, likely, but there's plenty of Stoic programming as well. Maybe some of you this morning, this is really your mindset. And it's still alive and well, even creeping to church, right? Epicurean, I'm just going to pursue pleasure no matter what the cost. No matter, there's no boundaries, no strings on me, right? Or perhaps you're given over to Stoic philosophy. You're going to be loyalty. You're going to be loyal, rather. Do your duty. But you don't really have much gratitude for what God has done for you. So Paul listens to them both, right? So some of them come up, and, and, and then some said, what does this babbler wish to, to say? Now, as a follower of Jesus, we want to be ready to approach and be approached. Amen? That's what Paul does. He goes up to some, some come up to him. And talk to people who have diverse worldviews. Now, what I've happened, not, not 100%, but by and large, uh, the Athenians thought things out much more than Americans do. Now, here's kind of the difference between a Greek mindset and an American mindset, and I think it's helpful to know. Um, Greeks said, facts dictate feelings. If I can prove something or argue something, then that determines how I feel about it. No, Americans, friends, we've totally flipped that up upside down right Americans say 
Feelings determine facts. As a matter of fact, if I feel a certain way, I don't even want to hear your facts because it's how I feel. Well, there's an expiration date on that. But Americans have deep convictions for the most part, but no real reason why they hold them. Have you noticed this? I don't know facts to back up. That is how I feel. But they feel, but they feel what they feel very deeply. But Christians, this is what I want to say, ought not to be like that. We can't be like that. Our faith is rooted in facts. Either Jesus went into the grave and came out, or he didn't. And if he didn't, friends, you can all be dismissed. That's what Paul says. In fact, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. <laughs> That's what Paul said. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, I ought to be Epicurean, or I ought to be stoked. Just find something. But, but, but our faith is not rooted first in feelings. It's rooted in fact. Did he come up, or did he not come out of the grave? Do you believe the Bible? Why? Now, here's an insufficient answer. Well, just because. That's insufficient. Have you read it? Do you trust it? Do you believe it? Have you investigated it? Have you gazed or did you just run through the, the art museum, so to speak? Why do you believe what you believe? A few more thoughts real quick on Paul as some Athenians belittled Paul. What does this babbler wish to say? What's this babbler wish to say? <laughs> Uh, every culture and every language has um, idioms, and, and this was an idiom in the Athenians, and it was an insult. Babbler, literally, literally that word means um, seed picker. <laughs> so, um, so some idioms that we might use today, and, and I don't mean to be rude, uh, what's, this, um, what's this hick want to say, right? What, what's this, uh, what's this uh, unintelligent person want to say? What's this babbler I want to say they insulted him. Now, now, friends, if you've read Romans, let me ask you a question. Is Paul ignorant? Is Paul unintelligent? Is Paul a babbler? Some Athenians belittled Paul. And you just mark this down as well. There's a common response to people who think they are intelligent and educated, and they belittle people who do not agree with them. Again, that ought to be in contrast to how a Christian conducts himself or herself. You're to always treat people with dignity and with respect, even those who do not agree with you. Amen? So if you're going to be a gospel witness, just be prepared for some name-calling, right? Be prepared to be called a bigot, backwards, so on and so forth. Uh, They called him a babbler. He's a man of small, puny ideas. Paul started going by the name Paul, and you know what his name literally means? It means small. So Paul was fine with that. You can call me small. I know I'm small, but I'm here to proclaim a big God. And, and, and if you're going to be a gospel witness, just go on and you just got to go on and move past and get over what people would say about you and how they would criticize you. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are they when, uh, are you when they revile you and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you but you just don't respond in the same way right it's my shirt well i'm going to take it off that's how i was provoked in my flesh paul's provoked he's a babbler well you're a bigger babbler no no no. that's not what he says he doubles down because he was preaching jesus and the resurrection last quick note on the city of athens is that some athenians listened to paul some of them listened You're going to see this over and over now through Paul's ministry. 
Some, some uh, belittle him, talk down to him. What does this babbler wish to say? But just look at it. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now that is a soul winner's goal right there. Can you tell us? Tell us more. In fact, we're going to go to the, to the Areopagus. Now, again, in the United States of America, we've got Yankee Stadium or AT&T Stadium where the Cowboys play. Those are our cathedrals. Areopagus was the, the main event, right? We're going to take you up to the Areopagus, and we're going to allow you to speak there. So some Athenians listen to Paul. Sometimes you have to endure the insulters to get to those who are interested. Amen? Sometimes you just have to endure it. Just work through it. Because maybe not everybody will want to listen, but there are some who will. Well, let's move and talk now about Paul in Athens. Let's talk about Paul in Athens. Um, Just a few things quickly, but I think they're helpful. First point is this. Paul reminds us that who you are when no one is around is who you really are. Can we say that together? Can you see it on the screen? Let's all say it together. Paul reminds us that who you are when no one is around is who you really are. Did you see in verse 16? Paul, um, well, let's read um, verses 15 and 16 together. Uh, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. So I want to put two things together is that Paul and his ministry team was always desiring to work with other people. It had been Barnabas on the first missionary journey. As you remember, Barnabas and John Mark. Uh, Now it's uh, Silas and Timothy. So healthy ministry is always done in groups. It is not God's primary design that he sends individuals out, right? And you can go all through the scripture with this. Moses had Aaron, David has Jonathan, and so on and so forth. And so Paul is in line with that. He doesn't want to be by himself. He said, as soon as Silas and Timothy come, I want you guys to come. But when he is by himself, when he is by himself, he's who he really is. It's a little bit sobering, isn't it? So let me ask you a few questions so we're all tracking along and make sure we're on the same path here what you put on your computer screen or your tablet screen when nobody else is around is who you really are we tracking what you desire to read when you can read or watch whatever you want to read or watch when nobody else is around is who you really are because let's all just be honest here we learn from an early age how to uh, do certain things when people are around and then when they're not around. Does that make sense? It's a little bit uh, misleading, that statement is. Paul reminds us that who you are when, it's a little bit misleading, no one is around is who you really are. I want to read you some verses and you'll be able to determine what's not quite 100% accurate about that statement. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Did you hear that? That's Hebrews 4.13. Epicureans don't believe that. They don't believe we'll give an account. So it doesn't really matter what we do. But the scripture says, no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight. 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Proverbs 5.21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And I just want to pause here for a moment because it's a sober truth, but it is a truth. It is a truth. Who we are, what no one is around, is who we really are. Now, friends, you can fool everybody else in the world, but you stand exposed before the Lord. You ready for this? He knows everything about you, and he loves you more than anybody loves you. That's incredible, isn't it? He knows who I really am. Jesus Christ knows all those things. Now, I, I would imagine, I would imagine, if, and we've used this illustration before, but we'll use it again. Are there some scenes in your life that you wouldn't want on the screen for everybody else to see? I, I'll be the first. I've got some. Not some. I've got many. God's seen them all. And I'm going to give an account to him. Now, friends, I can fool myself my whole life long and say either I'm not going to give an account for it, which is false, or I can stand before him and it's not really that big a deal to him. Those are the kind of the two twin lies that people hold to. I don't give an account, or if I do, I, you know, we'll just, like a, like a foolish student who knows the test is coming and says, I'll just figure it out when I get there. No, I'm going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. But here's the truth of the matter for a believer in Jesus. When they say, roll the film, guess what pops up on the screen? The life of Jesus. And you want some good news? Jesus is fine if you watch that tape from beginning to end. You will not find a sin in secret. You won't find a secret sin hidden in the heart that Peter and James never saw. But oh, he was faithful in everything. He who knew no sin became sin. So when I stand before the Lord and they start to roll the tape, roll the footage, the scripture says now, Colossians, my life is now hidden with Christ. It's hidden. He's, it's covered. Paid in full. Glory to God. And see, here's what provokes Paul. is Paul believes that. Paul trusts in the grace of God. And then he looks around at a city who's not prepared for that day. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if a forecaster on WRAL or wherever you watch the news, this time, uh, uh, say, Wednesday a week ago, say, well, there's nothing to worry about this weekend. Sunny in 72. And then a hurricane came. What would you say of the forecast? They're not trustworthy. <laughs> he says a warning is issued. And that's what Paul's saying, man. There's much more than a hurricane that's coming. We have to all give an account to a holy God. But let me tell you about the holy God. And look what he says. Jesus and the resurrection. We'll either live life as if we will give an account or we will never give, or we will live as if we will never give an account. But that doesn't change the fact that you will give an account. <laughs> Does that make sense? We will give an account. Praise God Almighty. My account is Christ. Paul was, uh, spirit was provoked, and he could not remain idle around idols. That's the, that's the next point. Paul could not not share Jesus. Paul could not sit on the sidelines. Paul could not get his travel uh, diary out and said, well, I was in Athens today, and man, there are a lot of idols around, around here. The city was full of idols. That phrase kind of means they were under idols they were drowning in idols and paul could not remain idle what better describes your sharing of jesus idle or active and i want to give you one more point and i think it's a very very important point you ready for it here we go when our spirits are not provoked 
we become cultural critics instead of gospel witnesses. When our spirits are not provoked, we become cultural critics instead of gospel witnesses. And here's what I mean by, by that. If Paul had just been a cultural critic, here's how it would have read. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll skip it to next week, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he saw that the city was full of idols, and he couldn't wait to tell Silas and Timothy about how wicked they were in Athens. That's, that's what I mean by a cultural critic. And friends, we're immersed in this in our country. I just have to tell you. Okay, let me give you a couple of differences between a cultural critic and a gospel witness because there's a huge difference. Cultural critics sit on the sidelines and complain about people. In Paul's case, can you believe the Epicureans? I mean, I have never seen people act like this. They have no boundaries to their behavior. They, 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 they're doing things that you wouldn't believe. And now I'll post about it. Or <laughs> no, no. Cultural critics sit on the sidelines and complain about people. Gospel witnesses get involved and converse with people about Jesus. You see the difference? Cultural critics will sit on the sideline and they'll complain and complain, but a gospel witness gets involved and converses with about people. Cultural critics, another difference is they can remain detached and isolated. Gospel witnesses get involved. Cultural critics speak and complain about broad groups of people. Gospel witnesses know and love people by name. You have, a, you have a burden with a name in your heart today. Cultural critics never see people enter the kingdom of God. Gospel witnesses regularly welcome people into the kingdom of God. Cultural critics truthfully have more in common with the Epicureans and the Stoics than they do with Paul. Cultural critics are more concerned with being right and winning arguments. Gospel critics are more concerned with being Christ-like and winning souls. Let me say that one more time. The cultural critics are more concerned with being right and winning arguments. Gospel witnesses are more concerned with being Christ-like and winning souls. And here's the distinction between the two at its core. It's this phrase. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit, his spirit was provoked. When I was provoked by my brother and rushed at him in a rage, I was provoked in my sin nature, my pride, my desire to be right and have my own stuff. But Paul was not provoked that way. He was provoked in his spirit. And this kind of provocation leads not to us to attack others and yell at others and scream at others, tear the shirt off their back, but, but rather here in line with the Scripture to reason with people and help others to willingly suffer loss so that they might hear and believe. And friends, that's Christ-like love. Because here's what the Scripture says of God. Come let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet. Now, that is scriptural and that is biblical. But a cultural critic screams about scarlet sins more than they proclaim that they can be made white as snow. Does that make sense? Your sins are as scarlet, but they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. And we don't want to diminish or, or water down either of those truths. But I want you to see that the invitation comes from God that we would reason together. When we see Jesus clearly, we know him personally, we love him dearly, idolatry is not something that we just are indifferent to. And I think that's what I learned about my own heart. There's some idolatry that I'm surrounded by, and I'm just kind of good with it. It doesn't provoke me anymore to reason and proclaim the gospel. And I want God to rescue me, that I'd be a gospel witness and not simply a cultural critic. Now, friends, there, there is plenty about our culture to criticize. But I believe the grace of God allows us to shift from just being a kind of a cultural critic instead, like Paul, to be a gospel witness because he gets the opportunity right he gets the opportunity what's this babbler wish to say others said and friends i think i think a cultural critic never gets to this moment like a gospel witness does others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching jesus in the resurrection and they took hold of him and brought him to the areopagus saying may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. A gospel witness, by the grace of God, will have an opportunity to share. We're going to move to the invitation, and I've just got four real simple questions with you. It's kind of like the fall festival (laughs) announcement. You've got four things. I just want you, as we go to the invitation, to maybe grab hold of one of these, right? Just one of these. And as we sing and as we pray, just spend some time. Friends, we're a, a rushed culture. We don't just rush through art museums. We rush through everything. But the invitation by design is, a, is an opportunity for you, before everything goes back to the hectic schedule or whatnot, that you just take some time. This is, this is God's design, that there be a day a week that's unlike all the other days. And, and it's sort of like uh, the, the recharge day, if you will. Your cell phone needs to be recharged. You need to be recharged. I don't want to run on empty, so I don't want to rush through them, but we're going to have an invitation. So here's my four questions. Question number one, is your spirit provoked or at ease with idols? Is your spirit provoked or at ease with idols? That's question number one. Secondly, are you willing to endure the harsh criticism in order to reach those who will listen? Are you, are you willing to hear, he's a babbler, he's backwards, he's a bigot, he's all the, all the words and phrases that are so common. But are you willing to endure that harsh criticism in order to get to the other said, let's hear what he has to say. Third question, some of us need to grab hold of. Do you have faith and love for Jesus faith and love and obedience to Jesus in secret or is it only for public show? That's an important question, friends. Who you are when nobody else is around, that's who you really are. And uh, there's going to be a day that's going to reveal it. God's given you an opportunity to be ready for that day. So do you have faith and love and obedience for Jesus in secret or is it only for show? And then the last question, is uh, have you become more of a cultural critic than you've grown as a gospel witness? Let's stand together. We'll pray together. And the invitation is for you this morning to 
think carefully about these questions, right? Paul demonstrates that he's so like Jesus. Jesus was so provoked in his spirit that he came to reason with us and to open a way for true freedom. Let's pray together. God, may it not be that we be hearers of the word only and not doers. I pray right now by the Holy Spirit in this place, during this time of response and invitation, we give us grace to think carefully and sober-mindedly about these things. Provoke spirits who we are in secret. God giving us grace to be gospel witnesses and not just cultural critics. Thank you for the scripture. If there's any idol in our life that we've become at ease with instead of provoked by, reveal it. If there's a a timidity in us that we're not willing to endure insult, if we're not willing to be uh, harshly spoken about, our reputations soiled, untrue things said of us in order to be a witness. Lord, if there's a fear in our hearts about that kind of thing, reveal it, heal it, remove it. Father, if there's secret sin in our life that nobody else knows about, but it's always before us. Oh God, would you give us grace to know who we are when no one else is around us, who we really are. And it's in the secret areas of our life that our great need of Christ is most clearly seen. For no one in this room has a secret area that they would want exposed for all to see. But thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, even though you see all things, you've come and your blood is sufficient to cover the deepest and the most secret sin in our life. Father, lead us now in invitation as we sing and respond to do so in a way that is in accordance with the truth from your word as we've studied. In Jesus' name, amen.